4: Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice, Buck Sexton.
5: Healthcare hysteria abounds, my friends. It is all over the place. Happy Sanco de Mayo. Buck Sexton here with you all. Uh, really appreciate you hanging out with me on this well, hopefully it's lovely wherever you are. It's been it's been raining like crazy here in New York City, uh, but thank you so much for being with me. I very much appreciate it. And yesterday you had the House pass a health care bill. We talked a lot about it, the different details of it, the all right. So we know what's in it more or less. Uh, and today you had the the aftermath, which is just hysteria from the left on this. They believe that this is a medical apocalypse that will befall all of us. Uh, And of of course the reality is it's not nearly potent enough in either direction to have all that much impact as a, and it's not even a law yet, but you never want, if you're a a leftist journalist, you write for one of these, one of these uh, postings out there that is always trying to just one up the others with the most outrageous inflammatory headlines possible. Uh, this was an opportunity we're, we're back to the democrats are back to the gop wants to kill old people and hurt poor people and not give them health care that that's mostly the argument There there's a real discussion to be had here a real argument over what has gone on with this house bill which is not even yet a law as we discussed yesterday in the senate it has to either take up a version of the law on their own and then goes into a uh, conference afterwards to iron it out and or the House will vote on it. I mean, there's there's a whole process that still has to happen here. So nothing has nothing has changed since yesterday, except the House Republicans don't look like they are completely feckless and worthless. That's it, really. Not not much else has changed. Uh, but that didn't stop various sites from making it sound like this was the this was the worst thing ever, and that the GOP is full of hateful, spiteful maniacs who just want to watch people die slowly from preventable disease in the streets. Um, you've got Jezebel. Here's a health. Here's a headline. GOP health bill passes as House Republicans drink beer and Democrats sing. Um, and then you've got another site called Broadly after passing cruel and deadly health care bill. The GOP celebrates. Um, with beer. By the way, these are headlines about a a beer party that I didn't even think happened, right? But you go down the list of, of different headlines here. Millions of Americans are about to lose health care coverage and the Republicans are drinking beer. Uh, lots of, oh gosh, terrible things are happening. Republicans and Republicans are celebrating. That's what the headlines are saying. And you've even got some very prominent Democrats out there uh, saying well, all kinds of stuff. <laughs> moral monstrosity is probably among the most powerful language from the hyperventilating Democrats that I've heard here.
2: It's really a stupid bill. It's a stupid. It is a bill of deconstruction of government from the beginning. Trump Care was a moral monstrosity that will devastate seniors, children, and hardworking Americans.
6: This. Crushing age tax will fall on some of the most vulnerable members of our society. Tens of millions of Americans who are living with pre-existing conditions will be screwed. Instead of this cruel bill, let's come
1: together to improve health care, not take health insurance away from millions just to give tax credits to the wealthiest. We're better than that. Let's put this bill in a coffin, not Americans. Gentlemen, let's kill God, and this bury expired. this bill. Thank you.
5: Democrats are out there saying people are going to die because of this. I'm here to tell you that it doesn't make enough of a difference for anyone to die because of it, I, or, or, or not die, probably. I mean, it, it doesn't really do very much. It, it really won't. And, and it's not even the law yet, so it doesn't do anything, actually, because it hasn't even become law. So it's still just an idea. It is in the process of possible passage through the Congress. Uh, oh, and of course, if we're going to talk about overblown uh, nonsensical fear fear rhetoric um, you gotta go with Bernie Sanders because he can pull together the uh, the shark NATO, if you will of elitism slash billionaires with taking health care away from people so that they oh yeah, so that they die uh, do
1: you think thousands
5: of Americans will exactly, die if absolutely no
2: question if
5: if which is not going to
0: happen Anderson. But if the bill passed today in the House became law, thousands of Americans would die because they would no longer have access to health
5: care. Uh, how they come up with this is, is, not, uh, is not clear to me. Um, but we should also understand that people are going to not have the access they want to the health care system uh, no matter what bill is passed by either party. Uh, you can do this in a couple of different ways. I've tried to give you... Uh, as best I can, a, a deconstruction, I think I'm using that in the appropriate way. I'm not deconstructing Shakespeare like they do in college, which they should just revere Shakespeare, but they deconstruct. But um, when you look at what's really happening, both sides have decided that the government has an obligation to provide health care for people. Democrats and Republicans are now all in the, healthcare, the government healthcare care game. It's a question of how much, do the states have more of a say versus the federal government, but both sides are in on this. This is now negotiating over the price. This isn't looking at the principle that underlines this whole thing and making a decision based upon that because ultimately you can't get a politician who would rather tell people that they will have to be responsible for their decisions up to and including going bankrupt because you don't have health insurance because— you chose not to purchase it, even if it was made financially possible for you to purchase. No one wants to say that. They just figure more tax dollars, more money goes into the system. That's the, that's the problem that we see here. Who, who wants to be the one who stands up and says, you know, there's a, an issue here of reality, ver- or, or, or let's see, forget about reality, supply and demand. No matter what health care bill is passed— It doesn't matter if the House bill as it stands now goes through or if they do something else for it, no matter what ends up being the law of the land with regard to health care in this country, there will be a shortage of top cardiologists. Now, heart disease is one of the biggest killers in this country, as we know. Now, there will be, of course, emergency rooms open to people who are having a uh, a serious heart condition or a heart attack there will be access but there will always be so, there will always be places where the system just does not have enough for everyone to go for enough for everybody to make their own choices and do whatever they want and have somebody else largely if not entirely pay for it that's just not going to happen all of this wrangling over the bill all of this well we need to structure the tax credits this way and that way and someone has to pay for it and there is, back to our supply and demand point, there are a limited number of doctors in various fields across the country, limited number of hospitals. The providers of health care can only do so much under the best of circumstances. And while we come up with these promises to provide care for, well, now really all Americans, and we should note that this is what Republicans are saying too. Republicans believe that everybody should have health insurance, and they believe that there should be a massive tax subsidy for that insurance which just is redistributing costs around to different people based on what they think is fair. So they're they're determining all that. This is not free market. It is maybe slightly more free market than Obamacare, but you still have the government telling insurers what plan, whether it's state or federal, what plans they can offer. You still have individuals who will be buying insurance with assistance money from the federal government and that means that those who have pre-existing conditions, which is not in the tens of millions, that was a nonsense statement from whoever that congressman was. Uh, but those who have pre-existing conditions uh, are are going to be subsidized by other people in the healthcare market. That's that's happening. Whether it's through a, a high risk pool, which is going to be paid for with tax dollars, uh, or if they're brought into the the general pool, however it is set up, this doesn't change the basic laws of the universe. It doesn't change supply and demand. And we are now in a situation where the Republicans won't be honest about this, but we've decided that health care is a human right instead of a, 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 good answer, a goods and services. It's a market commodity. It's something that you buy. It's something that you pay for. And it's no longer just about in extremis, everyone gets care, no one's allowed to die out on the street waiting to get into the hospital. We've gone well beyond that now. Everyone's entitled to continuous care, and the government's deciding the subsidies and the rates. This is what's fascinating to watch play out: is that this is not nearly uh, profound enough as a an act of government to warrant the outcry from the left. But because the left is screaming about how it's going to throw all these people off their insurance and they're all going to die, and the Republicans are monsters, we don't even have the discussion. We're not even having the discussion about wait a second, this isn't about a free market. This isn't about allowing people to buy the health care plan that they want. This isn't distilling all of this down into basic contracts with insurers like you do with everything else in your life. Right? When, you're, when you get car insurance, you, you know what you're paying, you know what you're getting, you know what you're dealing with. I mean, sure, there's some shenanigans here and there, I'm sure, but with your house, the same thing. It's only with health insurance that we pretend it's insurance when it's really just care. And health care is just goods and services. It's, it's money. They're moving money around. We're having an emotional argument instead of an economic argument. And I'm talking about Republicans. No one will make the honest and forthright case about what's going on here. This is not a repeal of Obamacare, as I said to you yesterday. It does not repeal Obamacare. In fact, it just changes around some of how Obamacare does what it does so that it's perhaps more efficient, a slightly less costly, slightly less likely to have insurer flight from states where already there's one plan, the plan stinks. But these are mostly stopgap measures. They don't change the basic reality. And, and by the way, we're off in this corner talking about what is really the individual healthcare care market. We're not talking about the long-term costs of Medicare. We're not talking about the government's continued spending beyond what it takes in and what that means for us as an economy at a macro level. No, we're all fighting over the individual health care market right now, and it's just become a question of how big, how generous should the subsidies be? How much of your tax dollars should go to a system that will largely benefit other people more than it benefits you? That's the reality of it. Uh, for a lot of folks who are going to be paying for their plans, even under even if the Republican plan goes through, or the Republican law goes through, they will be subsidizing others. So you're not even getting the maximum benefit of the dollars that you are paying for y- your family's health care and your health care. You will be subsidizing others. Uh, and this is why they've destroyed the concept of insurance. It's not insurance. We are not talking about health insurance. We are talking about health care. And this is the danger that we face now politically. Republicans did something great. High five, Republicans. You're not completely useless. The Republicans the Senate are already saying they're not going to go forward with the bill as passed. And so we'll see how this shakes out in the weeks ahead. But they've more or less accepted that some version of a government system of mandates for insurers, as well as Encouragements and inducements and financial support for people across the country to buy health care—that's that's here to stay. That's not going away. So Republicans did something, but whereas right now, and, and I'm I'm going to tell you to keep an eye on this because it'll happen. It's not going to happen tomorrow or next month, but this is how the narrative will shift. Right now, it's Republicans are evil and they want people to die. And they're, they're throwing grandma, they're taking grandma in the wheelchair and throwing her off the cliff to save money for the fat cat donors that own the insurance companies. <laughs> you know, they're so evil, the whole thing. You get it. It's, it's mid Romney 2012 all over again. Republicans are giving people cancer. I mean, that's what the Democrats are saying. That will still be there. But also understand that when it comes closer to the midterm elections, the story's going to be. The Republicans lied to you, America. They said they were going to repeal Obamacare. They didn't repeal Obamacare. In fact, they just tried to mess with Obamacare a little bit and made it worse. Now, will that be true or not? Doesn't really matter. They will say that they that the Democrats will say Republicans misled the American people about how terrible Obamacare was. They didn't change enough of it to even begin to pretend that it's a repeal of Obamacare, And they are accepting many of the basic premises that House Republicans, Senate Republicans for years were saying we're destroying health care, destroying the economy and need they need to be gone. Democrats are going to say, see, they were just they were just talking about a whole bunch of stuff and they didn't mean it. And what we did, we being the Democrats, was brave because we pushed for the very kinds of plans and the subsidies and the actions that Republicans have just done a worse job of but you see we're negotiating now over the price of Obamacare we're not talking about the eradication of Obamacare and the political consequences for that in the midterms will be severe Team I almost forgot I mean I never would really forget but it's Action Movie Quote Friday because it's Friday Action. If it pleads, we can kill it. Movie.
4: Go to the coast. We get together. Have a few laughs. Quote free your mind. Fridays. Action movie quote Fridays.
5: Uh, And it's also Sanco de Mayo, which is exciting. So if you have an action movie quote for an action movie that at least in part takes place in, has scenes in, or deals with the uh, sovereign state of uh, Mexico. By all means, for extra points, let's see what you got, Nathan, in Michigan. Good to have you, sir.
3: Hey, shield tie, Buck. Shield tie. All right, this one's going to be easy.
2: Ready? I'm always ready. All right, and you can take that to the bank.
5: Ah! All right, hit the buzzer.
2: Oh, I was gonna finish it for you, then you'd really get it. I'll take you to the bank, Senator.
5: Oh That's wait, no, it's fun. Steven Seagal. <laughs> there you go. All right, yeah, when you finish it, I got it.
2: <laughs> nice.
5: There we go. Cool. All right, well, thank you. I mean, we'll give you like a buzz slash beep on that one. It was kind of kind of right, kind of wrong. But what are you doing for Cinco de Mayo? You out there? Are you gonna are you gonna celebrate or no? Nothing.
2: Uh, wife is making tacos. That's about it.
5: Yeah, fantastic. All right, very nice, sir. Enjoy, Shield High. Thank you for calling in, Brad in Virginia. What's up, Brad?
0: Hey, Buck. I just wanted to comment on uh, the the biggest entitlement uh, program, which was Obamacare, and most people didn't realize. When I talk to people, they talk about the twenty some odd million people that were um, added that didn't have benefits, but they don't realize ninety nine point nine percent of those that got added under Obamacare were people who didn't work. I mean, some of them, second, you have second and third generation welfare recipients that hadn't, no one's had a job in three generations.
5: I don't think, Brad, you're not, I don't think it's, I mean, you 99% figure, I assume you're speaking, uh... Uh, you know you, you're you're not actually it's not actually 99 percent right i mean you're uh just off the cuff there with that but are you are you referring to the medicaid no, but, uh, are you recur- referring to the medicaid expansions that were the biggest because that was the, the single biggest coverage bump from obamacare was medicaid which is just health care for uh people who are low income that's that's often lost in this whole discussion a lot of people who used to have health care lost it because Obamacare gave them crappier health care that cost them more so they could give other people some health care with subsidies. And then there are even more people, the vast majority of those who were covered under Obamacare, were just Medicaid expansions in states that expanded Medicaid, which is Medicaid is, is a health care welfare program. So so that's that's where most of the expansion came from.
0: Yeah, it's pretty much an entitlement. The, the ones that were added, it, it ain't so much welfare recipients. It's, it's, it's people that weren't eligible before. You know, like a lady that gets pregnant, she's covered, job or no job, payment and no payment. She's covered as long as she, until she has a child, and she's dropped out for that.
5: Well, I have to look I have to look at individual cases. But, Brad, thank you for calling in for Virginia. I appreciate it. Sorry, we got to go into a break here. I see the action movie quotes piling up. Just wait for me, my friends. We will get to your action movie brilliance, Uh, but we've got a couple of guests here. And uh, 844-900-2825. Action Movie Sanco de Mayo continues in a minute.
4: The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back.
5: All right, everybody, let's get into uh, healthcare a bit more here. We're joined by John Davidson. He's a senior correspondent at The Federalist, and uh, his writing has also appeared in The Wall Street Journal, National Review, and elsewhere. He lives in Austin, Texas. All right, fantastic. John, thanks for calling in.
1: Thanks for having me.
5: So uh, your piece here in The Federalist says a lot, just with the headline, House Republicans pass slightly different versions of Obamacare claim victory. Please tell us about this.
1: Well, the basic point is the American Health Care Act that was passed yesterday keeps the basic framework of Obamacare in place. And the changes that were made between the first version of it and the version that they passed uh, really just kind of tweaked around the margins, around the edges. Uh, but more or less, Obamacare has not been repealed by by this bill. Even if it passed the Senate in its current form, we would still basically have Obamacare, just a different version of it that the Republicans now own.
5: And this is uh, a statement. It shouldn't be a statement of fact that's pretty obvious one way or the other whether it is repealed or not? Is, isn't this a verifiable, quantifiable thing? <laughs> it seems to me like either Obamacare is repealed or it is not repealed. Yesterday they are saying it was, but if a lot of it is still in place, then that's not really accurate.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, you know, the truth is all of Obamacare was never going to be repealed, even going back a couple of years when you look at the different plans that uh, various Republican lawmakers or conservative think tanks put forward, they all kept parts of Obamacare in place. And part of the reason for that is that certain parts of Obamacare are simply popular keeping kids on their parents' insurance until they're 26, right? That's popular. That was never going to go away. Uh, Keeping the prohibition against discriminating for, uh, you know, on the basis of of sex uh, or uh, discriminating uh, on the basis of age, you know, preexisting conditions. Those were all popular. The problem is those provisions get to the very heart of what Obamacare was trying to do, which is transform Uh, health insurance into something that it wasn't before and that transformation is why you see these really large premium increases and why increasingly around the country you're seeing the individual exchanges uh fail and insurers pulling out of them
5: will the republican version uh or the the house republican version of uh, the health care bill american health care act Will that stop exchanges from failing, or will it eventually run into some of the same problems in terms of cost, cost overruns, and uh, exchange exchange problems that Obamacare has?
1: You know, I I don't think it will stop them, and and here's why. I'll try to make it simple and and succinct without getting too far into the weeds. Health insurance is hopelessly complicated, as anyone who's ever dealt with it knows. Uh, The basic provision they put in there was that if states want to, they can apply in like two years or, or, or beginning next year. For right. They can period. get
5: a waiver from essential benefits, right?
1: Yeah, they, they, so they can get a waiver uh, and, and, and waive essential benefits. Not all of the uh, insurance requirements will be waived, but some of them can be waived. But, of course, the state legislatures have to act to do this. And not all states are going to do that, because obviously a lot of blue states especially really like Obamacare. And so basically what co- Congress is saying is that if you like your Obamacare, you can keep it. Uh, and a lot of states are going to do just that. Well, the problem is in, even in states that where the de- Democratic-controlled legislatures or governor's offices like Obamacare, their individual insurance markets, these Obamacare exchanges, are still failing. And that's not going to stop, because— it's the regulatory regime of Obamacare itself that's causing these exchanges to fail and causing insurers to get out of the individual markets because they can't make any money
5: at them so this is not a this is not a win except for the optics in your opinion. is that fair to say
1: yeah, and it's sort of a win for the right and the left only on the optics. There's no substance here it's all political theater. Republicans get to say, hey, we repealed Obamacare and we fulfilled our campaign promises that we've been making for seven years. And Democrats get to say, look at these evil Republicans. They've destroyed health care. Millions of people are going to die. The sky is falling. So rhetorically, it's kind of a win for everybody, but it's not a win for the American people who are still saddled with the same basic architecture of Obamacare and a Republican Fix that doesn't really fix the core problem.
5: What are your expectations for the uh, House Republican I mean, the Senate Republicans?
1: What the Senate should do is apparently what they're doing right now, which is writing their own bill. Um, and hopefully that bill is going to be more substantive and address some of the more uh, core issues that we're causing. Uh, insurance markets to fail under the current Obamacare regime. Uh, Whether or not they'll do that and whether or not they have sort of the political will to do that remains to be seen. But there's a working group in the Senate that's been at work for a number of weeks now drafting their own bill. And, uh, you know, we'll we'll see what they come up with. Uh, I'm hoping that because the Senate moves a little bit more slowly, because it's a little bit more of a deliberative body, they won't be as subject to these unrealistic timelines these sort of closed-door deals that have characterized the House Republican effort so far.
5: And you have a piece up on the federalist if Obama wants to help Democrats he should disappear taking what I would I would think is a contrarian view on this one.
1: Well, this was prompted by Obama's recent uh, speaking uh, event at the University of Chicago and a number of other upcoming appearances that he he has, you know, Obama, unlike previous presidents, is already out back out in sort of the public eye and he means well. But I don't think Obama and sort of his close circle of advisers uh, and supporters really have grasped how much he damaged the Democratic Party during his eight years in office um, There's a reason that Donald Trump is president right now and that Republicans control the vast majority of state houses and governor's mansions across the country. And it has a lot to do with the fact that, uh, you know, Democratic leadership under Obama didn't pay attention to those things, pushed a a very progressive agenda uh, many times through executive order uh, and alienated a huge part of the Democratic base, traditional working class Democratic voters who voted for Trump. So Obama trying to help now is is a, a day late and a dollar
5: short. I'm speaking to John Davidson. He's a senior correspondent at the Federalist. You can check out his latest at thefederalist.com. dot uh, com. John, the the wall. Tell me about what your thoughts are on the wall. You live down in Texas, although not you're in Austin, right? So you're not not close to the where a wall would be. Uh, but what are your thoughts on what happened with the wall negotiations leading into the budget showdown? Well,
1: I think that the wall may have always just been kind of a rhetorical device that Trump was never really serious about. I I think it's pretty unanimous here in Texas, Republican, Democrat alike. We're against the wall. People who live in the southern border states, who understand the interaction between the United States and Mexico, uh, the trade that goes across the border, the integration really of the economies down here with the economy in Mexico. uh, We understand that a wall uh, if, if it were built, would uh, effectively impoverish vast swaths of Texas that have really seen a lot of economic prosperity because of NAFTA over the last 20 years or so. So uh, there's incredible pressure, not just from Democrats, but also from Republicans, particularly in the Senate, uh, to, to, to uh, block or camp uh, down the, the this rhetoric about the wall and this plans for an actual wall.
5: Wait, why why it, would a wall impoverish, impoverish people? I'm, I, I elucidate a little more on that, if you don't mind.
1: It would effectively cut off communities from uh, a large source of commerce and uh, uh, intercourse between uh, Mexican cities and towns on Mexican side of the border and Texas cities and towns uh, on our side of the border. But, John, wouldn't it be uh, fair
5: to say that if they built a wall, there would obviously be— gates and and openings in the wall for roadways and, and legal passageway. So wh- why would it be an issue? Uh,
1: because the only way a wallet would be effective at, at uh, doing the things that, that Trump and supporters of the wall want it to do is if it was essentially a, a militarized border. And a militarized border does not lend itself to free trade and commerce and exchange, uh, the way that the current situation does where you have uh, this incredible flow of goods back and forth. And it's not just, it's not just one way, you know, we, we have this oversimplified way of talking about trade where we think that, you know, we're exporting a completed product to another country and the other country is, you know, exporting it a completed, you know, car parts pass between factories in Texas and Mexico You know, six or seven times before a vehicle is completed. So there's an integrated economy. But
5: I I mean, I assume they're doing that via roadways that are would be official border crossings anyway. I'm guessing that they're not putting people, you know, they're putting in backpacks and saying go across the desert. Right. So I'm confused as to why the commercial aspect of this would be problematic with a wall.
1: Because there's a lot of ancillary commercial activity that that happens simply because of the integration of a lot of these communities. You know, especially in South Texas, you're talking about communities and cities and towns that have been very, have had very close ties and very close integration with communities and cities and towns across the border going back centuries. So the ancillary commercial activity that goes on in these places is not conducive to a militarized border with a wall. It will effectively isolate places like Hidalgo and Presidio uh, and, and places all up and down, uh, the border, along, you know, in Texas with Mexico, and uh, that's why you see pretty universal bipartisan opposition to a wall, Republicans and Democrats alike, because they know it would hurt Texas at the expense of, you know, fulfilling a talking point for Rust Belt communities who feel that they've been the victims of unfair globalization and competition
5: from foreign manufacturers. Bit, I mean, you, this, we could go back to the Secure Fence Act of 2006, which, of course, did not. There was no follow through, but you had a bipartisan act of Congress to to build a wall. And how much fencing do we have down there of the two thousand or so miles, 700? Has, has it been particularly bad for the communities that are near places that are fenced along the southern border?
1: No, and, and part of it is that you know that, that was passed. Uh, and part of the reason you know that it was not followed through upon is because they, they encountered difficulties. It's very impractical on certain parts of the border to build a wall. The, the most effective barrier, say, in the Trans-Pecos, uh, to people crossing illegally uh, at, or for illicit reasons is that there's a vast, harsh desert uh, that's very difficult to cross. And it's also very difficult to build and maintain a wall in these places. The other thing that you know we don't talk about a lot, but it's a real uh, problem, is that the wall is not actually on the border. The wall would be on the U.S. side of the border and it would pass through a a whole lot of private
2: yeah in
5: texas a lot of private property i know they don't talk about that that's that is accurate john i i appreciate you taking the time unfortunately we got to go because we're we're going to run into a break here but uh thank you for talking to us about a bunch of topics john davidson of the federalist appreciate it sir thank you all right team we're going to do a break 844-900-2825 our Senko de mayo show continues in just a few minutes welcome back everybody uh, we've got Elena Plott on the line. She is a staff writer for Washington, The Washingtonian. You can read her latest at Washingtonian.com, Beltway Insider, friend of the show. Elena, great to have you. Happy Sancto de Mayo. Hi, Buck. Thanks for having me. Okay, so the Heritage Foundation is a massive conservative think tank, very powerful and influential. There's been infighting, and you're telling me that there's some tie-in to what happened with the health care debate. Tell us what happened at Heritage and how it affects health care.
7: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So as I'm sure many of your listeners know, last week was a pretty big moment in the trajectory of the Heritage Foundation. Its president, former South Carolina Senator Jim DeVent, was pretty um, unceremoniously ousted by his position. And based on my reporting, that came in large part because of Clashed with Mike Needham, who, of course, runs the Heritage Action, which is um, the political arm of the foundation. The two of them clashed over, you know, should, should Heritage go all in in support of Trump, or should it kind of step back and align itself more with the interests of, say, the Freedom Caucus? But I, I, I found that the turmoil at Heritage was particularly interesting this week when we sort of saw um, Speaker Ryan, Leader McCarthy, scrambling to get votes for this health care bill, because normally Heritage would be a pretty potent force in rallying members to leadership side in something like this. Um, but the turmoil is, and the fracturing in the party is such that there's essentially no outside group there to help Republican lawmakers when they have a really close vote coming up.
5: And what's going to happen now? Who's going to take over and how does this affect legislation going forward?
7: So right now we know that um, most likely Ed Fulner is going to be interim president, who, of course, was one of the founders of Heritage Foundation. He was sort of the kingmaker during the Reagan years. Um, but, you know, my sources tell me that all signs point to Mike Needham ultimately taking over, which sort of means that Heritage Action, sort of the politi- politicization of the place, is going to effectively take over this entire institution. And that means that um, they will likely be a thorn in Republican leadership's side going forward. And if this health care vote was any indication, I don't know um, how much of a help they're going to be on bigger plans of President Trump, like, say, tax reform or an infrastructure bill.
5: And what do you think the Republicans uh, in the Senate are going to do in response to the House passage of the uh, American Healthcare Act? I mean, what are your sources telling you about, is it true they're really going to just come up with their own bill?
7: I don't know that they're going to come up with their own bill entirely, but this is not going to go unchanged at all. I mean, um, there's so many people, including Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, who are adamant that if this bill does not change in its House version, they will not be voting for it. And, you know, the Senate can only afford to lose two Republicans on this bill. Um, so it's really important that you know Mitch McConnell kind of get down and figure out what it is that's going to satisfy, say, the Murkowskis of the conference, but also the Ted Cruz's of the conference. You know, you have people in red states like Ted Cruz and Jeff Flake who – are going to have a base of voters um, when they're up for re-election saying, you know, we were promised repeal and replace for seven years now, and this just doesn't do that. And So it's a a fine line he has to navigate, and then the House has to vote again once these guys go to conference. So it was a little strange to me to see um, a huge ceremony in the Rose Garden when the House isn't even done voting on this bill. Um, I think uh, Republicans are getting a bit ahead of themselves right now.
5: So you're not too hopeful for tax reform anytime soon, I I would imagine.
7: Absolutely not. I mean, for Secretary Mnuchin to say that we'll have tax reform on the floor in August is just fantasy land. Uh, You know, getting repeal and replace done, and I would argue this bill is not even that, but getting this done has been a really, really heavy lift. Tax reform, I I would argue, is a million times more complicated.
5: Elena Plott of The Washingtonian, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Mark in California. Welcome to Freedom Hut, sir. Mark in California. Did I scare him away with all this Freedom hunt talk? Mark, where'd you go, buddy? Okay, he's not there. Let's try Ed in Ohio.
2: Mr. Sexton.
5: Mr. Ed, how are you?
2: Oh, okay. Um, just wondering if you could explain a couple things to me. I'm, I'm not an educated man, But it seems to me like the Republicans begged us for the House. We give it to them. They begged us for the Senate. We give it to them. They begged us for the presidency. We give it to them. We can repeal Obamacare, not repeal and replace, repeal. Uh, We can build a wall. Uh, And it just seems to me like uh, Mr. Trump is running into opposition from his own party. And I'm just wondering, sir, do you think these guys are talking themselves into term limits?
5: Uh, well, they'll never go for term limits themselves, right? They'll never vote for their the uh, oh, exactly. curbing of their own powers. but I, I, I see your point here. Look, I, I think so far the Republican it's it's tough to get too excited about what the Republicans have done. It's you know this isn't about Trump. this is more about the party. And you know, Trump prevented Hillary. so so he gets he gets a huge high five and a lot of benefit of the doubt. For me, at least, and I know from a lot of you listening, but the Republicans in Congress, all all they do is sit around trying to figure out how to get legislation through and what legislation to get through. They promise certain actions, and some of them just don't want to get it done. I, don't, I mean, Ed, you're 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 uh, what you're picking up is what's out there, my friend. Uh, you're not imagining it. So um, I gotta, I, I agree. Uh, but thank you for calling in, yeah. sir. I'm sorry we're at, we're at time, but I appreciate you holding. Thank you for calling, um, team. We are gonna get into some uh, French election talk in the next hour and then we'll get into some uh, Sanco de Mayo and we're going to have some fun. I'll be right back. He spreads freedom because freedom's
4: not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back.
5: All right, Team Buck, great to have you with me. We've got Tom Rogan joining us now. He's a contributor at Opportunity Lives, writer at National Review, all around great dude. Tom, thanks for calling in.
6: Good. Thanks to be with you. Unfortunately, Opportunity Lives is now Opportunity Dead. Um, so it's just National Review and uh, Washington Examiner. But uh, I, it's always
5: good to be with you. Wait, are you serious?
6: I, yeah, yeah. And I thought I had to make a little joke about that. I mean, it's it's sad, but you know
5: what happened.
6: I didn't know about this. Well, I think it's as as with media organisations, a great idea, and um, you know, unfortunately, the uh, logistics didn't necessarily. Well, work
5: fortunately, Na- National, National, National Review has, has, has some, some, National some, Review some, weathers many a storm. It is it is a good. A good ship to be on in uh, the stormy yeah, seas I, that are conservative yeah, okay. media, which, by the way, I haven't talked about that much on the show right now. I don't know what conservative conservative media even is anymore. I, I don't know what's going to happen, where it's going to go. There are some big—I I th- want to talk about the French election. We can talk about this first, though. What's going to happen at Fox News? I don't know. Are any of the competitor networks or the upstart networks going to catch a, catch a, a real gust of wind here and, and move forward and get big? I don't know. But right now, it's like— what is that? What is conservative media? I don't even know. Well, it's
6: an exciting time in media, and right? I think that's good. And there's always opportunities. You know, I, I hope I can, um, like a phoenix from its ashes, uh, opportunity lives will one day return. But but you know, there is so much diversity of readership and and competition. And I have to say, some people, you know, traditional that. places uh, complain about that. But the the real issue is that there is a uh, a reality that. Actually, more competition, more people speaking uh, is beneficial. I
5: I agree, although you do have a a lot of uh, the the competition online pushes it to a point where, as you well know, uh, Tom, the expectation for much of the writing that people do is that it will be for free, (laughs) which is not which is not conducive to uh, paying bills and and uh, and and surviving very long in the business. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The, yeah, no. I'm just mean, saying that the, the digital it, it, media it, it, world brings with it fantastic, uh, fantastic openings, but it also means that there are uh, the, the downward pressures uh, on wages in the marketplace are are very real. So that's something else. Anyway, Tom and I will talk about conservative media together another time. Let's talk about the French. <laughs> let's talk about the French election, sir. Um, we've got uh, uh, Marine Le Pen. Um, hey, you know what? I'm just going to hand this over to you, Tom. It's Friday. It's Enco de Mayo. I haven't had a margarita yet, but I'm already thinking about them. Tell me what's going on with the French election on Sunday as you see it right now.
6: Well, I think the first thing uh, to note is that the the um, Emmanuel Macron, who's the sort of censorist candidate, is is leading by quite a significant margin. The poll tracks at a national level uh, have been pretty sustained in his favor. And, and so I think we can be relatively confident that it's not going to be the same surprise as we saw, um you know, with Donald Trump um and for example, the British general election. So I, I think Macron is very likely to be the winner, um, but, you know, never take anything for granted. And, and so the, in these final days, the campaign has become a lot more uh, adversarial in terms of personal politics. I mean, for example, In the last debate, Emmanuel Macron, which was earlier this week, called Marine Le Pen uh, a parasite. Uh, I mean, I think that's as bad as it ever got between um, uh, Mrs. Clinton and and President Trump. So there is a lot of animosity there. And the question will be, whoever wins, are they going to be able to bring the country together?
5: I I thought her line that either a woman will rule France either way, either me or Mrs. Merkel will will be in charge of France, was was pretty awesome, actually.
6: It was a clever line, it, you know. That that was a, it was a clever line, and she got under his skin a little bit, um, you know. And and I think he was just telling himself at certain points just to sort of stay calm and, and maintain composure um, because he is the front runner. But you know, there there was a, a playfulness to her character, I think, in the debate that you know, she, because she's so far behind, there's no you know problem with taking the biggest risks now, right? That you're liberated to just ignore anything but your own instincts and sort of. Have a bit of fun with it um, as it comes to the culmination.
5: Uh, tell everybody about the, the the parallels that that are being drawn between the uh, well the Trumpist surge in this country and, and Trumpism as a response to globalism and the the rise of Marine Le Pen. Why is she why is she resonating? Why is she in the second spot here? For uh, the premiership of a, of a very important country with a very large economy and a serious military, you know why is this all happening
6: well you know I think it 's slightly different to, to president trump. I mean if you look at the protectionism that marine le Pen represents it 's much more harder line uh, than president trump. Uh, the sense of belief in regulation in protecting um, you know, benefits uh, welfare benefits is something that that makes I think marine le Pen actually in many ways somewhat on the left, but I think the vein of anger that exists in France because of a, an economy that has seemed to stagnate, a situation of insecurity, a fear that traditional values of France are being degraded in the name of multiculturalism without values, I think those are those are issues that particularly uh, affect France. And look, I mean, I, I personally, I, you know, I had a piece at National Review this week saying why I thought actually last week, saying why I thought uh, Macron was the more conservative candidate. But at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm very skeptical of liberals like President Obama who endorse Oh, we've got it. Let's,
5: let's, let's play that for one second. Obama. I'm not planning to get involved in many elections now that I don't have to run for office again. But the French election is very important to the future of France
1: and the values that we care so much about. I have admired the campaign that Emmanuel Macron has run. He has stood up for liberal values. He put forward a vision for the important role that France plays in Europe and around the world. He appeals to people's hopes and not their fears. I also want you to know that I am supporting Emmanuel Macron to lead you forward.
5: I don't know if this is going to help Macron because you know Obama is is a, is a globalist type, and uh, you know that might not that might not have the effect he intends.
6: Right and I also don't think you know maybe I'm delusional I also I, I think a lot of this is president Obama desperate to be back in the news right that he wants to be you know relevant again he can't go off into the sunset and play golf as president bush did um and I think there's a kind of pathetic quality to that but anyway the, the issue I think I the reason I think Macron may have some opportunity here is number one I think anyone with a brain in France should be able to get that you really are going to have to have a big crackdown on those elements in society that are uh, working uh, against the very notion of France as a, a you know, de- democratic society with the rule of law and basic rights and, and and sort of kowtowing for some of the extremism. But you also need to expand opportunity there. I mean, they, you know, anyway, but look, President um, Obama, in terms of his, you know, pro-regulation, viewpoint in terms of office Emmanuel Macron's centerpiece for his campaign has been to to actually deregulate the private sector workplace to make it much easier for small and medium-sized businesses to hire and fire uh, which is a functional issue in terms of youth unemployment in France it, it's the you know it's the social welfare state promoting the you know destruction of the popular welfare and so he's trying to address that but we shall see what happens i just wonder with president obama whether um he, he i i suspect he doesn't really care that much uh, whether it helps macron i think he just wants to be able to say you know, obama's
5: that first obama's first concern is is always obama that that that's uh, right. that's a well well um well put and nothing new uh, but Mélenchon, I find this very interesting. So, everyone listening, I know it's a, the French are having their big election on Sunday. I know it's not here, but you can see the parallels between some of the dynamics at play in France and some of the dynamics from our most recent election. Uh, and but but Mélenchon is the uh, he's a trotskyist right? He's basically a communist, and he has not. They call him the uh, the the Chavez of France for Venezuela's uh, Hugo Chavez. Um, and he has refused to throw his support behind Macron, from what I understand, which could be a little bit. Of, so you got the commie won't back the center left guy because because people often forget he wasn't Macron part of Hollande the socialists cabinet. So that's a thing. Uh,
6: he, he he was, uh, but I mean he did quit. I think because they wouldn't push ahead with some of the deregulation things. And but you look, you're right. We are going to see, and I, I understand why a lot of people are skeptical. And. Well, I think the interesting thing is, why is, um, you know, Mélenchon uh, supporting uh, Marine Le Pen? And, and it's quite basically, I think, because for his support base, the idea of a um, French industries, which are incredibly inefficient, being protected from external competition is something that his voters uh, would want. They don't want the reforms that are necessary to liberate uh, French society to increase its productivity and and those things are hard steps, but they are necessary. and I do think there's a distinction here between President Trump and Marine Le Pen in the sense that we' both talked about the idea of more of better trade deals, and what you see from President Trump is also this dual effort to say, okay, how do we get you know private sector hiring up, how do we make it easier, these business roundtables, how do we you know cut regulations? You don't see that from Marine Le Pen. There is a, and that is a major difference that, you know, many on the left like to to blur them, especially because of the sort of legacy of uh, some of the things. And to, yeah, she, she's anti-policy. she's about
5: nationalism and anti-immigration, but she's also anti-efficiency, right? I mean, she she's she doesn't care yeah, about yeah. what's going to grow wealth, and she doesn't care about. Uh, free trade or she's the opposite of free trade so if she wins it's not like all of a sudden they're going to there'll there'll be no draining of the swamp that is a dynamic that whether one believes Trump will do that or not I I don't see that from Marine Le Pen I don't see the we're going to get rid of all of the uh all of the sloth and ineptitude and bureaucracy in this country in in France.
6: Correct I think that's absolutely right I think you know in, in Marine le pen's case, it's about preserving the status quo and and
5: you know, Cause she wants to like like protect the pensions and all right i mean there there's a lot of big there's basically a lot of big government stuff, but it's big French government stuff as opposed to big e u globalist government stuff
6: yeah exactly and and it and it's but it but it's the idea that you know you the thirty five hour work week and you know protect these generous pensions, and the way that you're going to be able to pay for this is you know the, the the old protectionist idea that if you put up tariffs, that you keep wealth at home. Uh, I, I fundamentally don't believe that, but you know we, that's that's her point of view and her electorate supporter point of view. And you know it's at least you know they're, they're going to have a uh, we're going to see what happens. It should be exciting.
5: Just give us a a couple of uh, you know your 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 top of the line comments here. Or top of mind, sorry. Top of the line, too, Tom. We only want the best for you. But no, top, top of mind comments on the uh, Duterte, uh, the president of the Philippines, and Trump meeting, and there was this whole dust-up. What happened?
6: Well, so, I, you know, I think what's interesting here, so basically, President Trump had a phone call with Rodrigo Duterte as the president of the Philippines. That upset a lot of people, um, specifically because President Trump extended an invite to President Duterte to come to the White House. Why did it upset people? Well, because Duterte has said some very strange things and, uh, about you know, being happy with uh, drug, dealer, well, drug dealers and drug users being executed on the streets. He has a record of human rights abuses. He made a comment about an American rape victim that was very unpleasant, called Obama, a son of a, I don't know if I'm allowed to say it, but you know, so he said all these things, and then President Trump invited him. My point of view in the argument we said, yes, okay, a lot of these things are bad, but at the same time, we live in an imperfect world, and Duterte, because of a lot of issues surrounding China especially, and I would encourage people to read the piece, whether they agree or not, is an important person for the American president to engage with. And if from a realist foreign policy doctrine, we should, you know, Trump should invite him. I think that was the right thing to do.
5: Tom Rogan is a writer at National Review. He's also Tom R. Tweets. For those of you who are on Twitter, you can follow him there. Tom, have a a happy Sanco de Mayo and a fantastic weekend. And Thank you for hanging out with us. You too, my friend. Thank you for having me on. Good to talk to you. Uh, Phones open, team 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. It is Action Movie Quote Friday, so you can try to bring it to the Action Movie Quote Master if you want. Or we can talk serious policy stuff, whatever's on your mind. We'll take some calls after the break, and then maybe we'll talk... Venezuela, and then we'll get into some Sanco de Mayo history, and we'll get into some other uh, other topics as well. So, got a lot of show. Stay with me. All right, we've got calls racked and stacked. We are lit here in the Freedom Hut. Um, Mark in California, you're on the Buck Sexton Show. Good to talk to you, sir. Hey,
2: Shields, hi,
5: Buck. Shields, hi, Mark.
2: Hey, so, uh, Tuesday I was a little... Uh fast on the gun for the action call cool friday so it's friday
5: okay you waited uh, i like this You're, you've been waiting all week i appreciate it
2: yeah well you didn't let me go on tuesday fair enough i'm here on friday
5: mark so, this is not nominal. Uh, are, rules. are you ready sir yes sir
2: uh, right it mm-hmm. is i like that okay so uh here it goes remember when i tell you remember when i told you i'd kill you last i lied
5: uh, that's from oh. Commando, and it's when he's holding, I believe his name is Sully, by ah. the leg over the ravine after uh, he has moved his yellow Porsche off to the side of the road. I, yep.
2: I'm pretty sure I knew you would have got that. You are the man, Buck. I really enjoy <laughs> your show, buddy. <laughs> you, you bring man. it to the people who really don't get in there, and you make us feel uh, like we're a part
5: of something. Well, you, you, uh, you guys are all you guys are all my extended family who listen. So thank you very much, Mark Shields. high. appreciate the call, um, Maggie in Mississippi, WBUV. What's up, Maggie?
7: Hey, Buck. Okay, so I got an action quote for you.
5: Yes, ma'am. Ready? Here we go.
7: Our, all right. Um, I've tried to kill this man, this person, three times, and he just won't die.
5: Uh, hit the buzzer. Uh, what is it?
7: 12 rounds with John Cena.
5: Oh, I don't even know John Cena made movies. Is that a, that's a thing that happens? He makes movies? I thought he was a wrestler, right? Yeah. He's an actor, uh, yeah. I mean, Maggie, it's It's definitely an action movie because I'm sure that guy's not doing Shakespeare. But, I mean, no offense to John Cena. Uh, but uh, I don't know that one. So you've introduced me to... Is it good? Do you recommend this? Or is this a slightly obscure uh, offering? He-
7: I've seen all three of them. They are awesome movies. Um, the first one's got John Cena. The second one has um, Randy Orton, and the third one has Dean Ambrose.
5: Oh, all right. I'll have to check he it also
7: out. starred in the movies, uh, the Marine, one of the Marine movies as well.
5: Yeah, okay. Well, very nice. All right, Maggie. Well, happy Sanctum tomorrow. Have a fantastic weekend. Thank you for calling in. Uh, Bill in West Virginia. What's up, Bill, on WWVA? Hi, Buck. I'd like to point out uh, the
0: similarities between the current Democrat uh, ploy of uh, concocting the Soviet threat for their own political gain. And in 1979, the same sort of thing with two Democrat senators, Stone of Florida.
5: You mean the Russian the threat fight. right now?
0: Well, the Russian threat now in yeah. 1979.
5: Yeah, Soviet, Soviet threat. Fight. right, right. Yeah, okay.
0: The uh, NSA issued a report saying that there was a combat brigade in Cuba, and uh, after all the dust settled, there had been no change in the Soviet presence in Cuba since the uh, missile crisis when there was some sort of an agreement reached. But it's the same ploy, creating this non-existent threat for their uh, uh, political gain. Those two senators were running for re-election at the time.
5: Yeah, I, I, the Russia stuff is all about is all about election anger. It has nothing to do with Russia as a geopolitical threat to us, really. I mean, I shouldn't say nothing. It's 90% we're so angry that Hillary lost, we want to blame Russia, and it's 10%. Yeah, Russia does some pretty bad things both inside its own borders and and externally. But a fair question to ask is, okay, so let's say the Russians do kick up some some dust and cause some problems in uh, Moldova or something, right? I mean, are, are we about to are we about to call in the 82nd Airborne? I mean, are we really going to go in metaphor? Well, I guess not metaphorically. Go in guns blazing? I think the answer is no. So it's interesting to see how they did things while Obama was president in Crimea in Ukraine and then in Syria, uh, as well as some agitations along the borders of, uh, or I should say, some provocations uh, outside of their borders and including uh, sending aircraft close to our airspace. And, but none of that is likely to lead to anything other than just posturing and maybe a, an angry letter from one diplomat to another. So I I think it's a very, uh, Bill, I think it's an exaggerated threat based on domestic politics right now. And keep in mind the Democrat intelligentsia stretching back for decades was willing to, was willing to explain away uh, communist monsters like Stalin and Khrushchev uh, and said that they weren't a threat. Now we've got Putin and all of a sudden we're hearing about how he jails journalists and, and walks around without a shirt on too much and is mean to other countries. Well, okay, but that's nothing new. He's been doing it for a long time. Why why the anger now?
0: Well, they're using that to get votes. To yeah, scare of course. The-
5: yeah, I mean the narrative. But by the way, there are so many. And Bill, thank you for calling in. Shields High, I appreciate it. Um, those of you who wonder where I say it's Shields High, and it's a reference to uh, phalanx warfare in ancient Greece. But we'll get there. I'll, I'll I'll bring it up again, and we'll go a little more detail on that when I have some time on a maybe even on a Friday, but not today. I don't think. Maybe maybe today. Uh yeah. On Russia, it's just funny to see the Democrats. Become so apoplectic on that and and just freak out so much. Same thing during health. I mean, Elizabeth Warren is saying this isn't football. It's not about scoring scoring points. Families will go bankrupt and people will die because of health care.
4: Buck Sexton with America Now. We are home. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles, shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's
5: 844-900-2825. Lines are lit. 844-900-2825, as you just heard a second ago. We've got some space if you want to call in. We've got a bunch of calls that we'll take right now. Richard in West Virginia, good to talk to you, sir. Hello there. Hello there.
2: Uh yeah, you know, I, I don't know if you explained this or not. So one to, one of the things one day I wanted to ask is, what's that shield tie? I hear you saying it. a Okay, it so to
5: all right, so I, I guess we'll get into some of it now. I was going to do. A, so I used to do uh, when I I did the Buck Sexton show over at uh, the Blaze, which is when I started my career in radio. I don't know, four years, five years ago, something like that. Now, um, I uh, would do deep dives in various either historical events or even just periods in history that I found of interest. So we'd spend. Uh, Half an hour, maybe an hour uh, on a a subject of history, and I I talked once about uh, phalanx warfare in ancient Greece and the, well, the, the hoplon, which was the large shield. Those of you who have seen 300 have some familiarity with what I'm talking about, although... Three hundred is really. <laughs> there's a lot that's obviously uh, not historically accurate, or the, the visuals in particular. They're missing all the armor that pretty much, except for the uh, the greaves um, and shin guard, and well, the, what goes over the shin. Um, but they uh, they carry a hoplon, which is a large uh, shield. And the Spartans, who are obviously well known for combat, would say, "Come back with your shield or on it." And I was talking to the. Uh, Audience, then I was talking to Team Buck then about it, and I said, Well, it, all of you, it feels like, especially being here in New York City and going up at, against liberals in the media and, and fighting for ideas that we all believe in, it feels like this is my phalanx. And so here we are, uh, shoulder to shoulder, shields high, a reference to the, the phala- phalanx warfare and, and the, the hoplon, which is the shield. Uh, that would be carried by hoplites. That's where the term comes from. So the hoplite is the soldier in the phalanx, a heavily armored infantryman, uh from the period of, of uh the high period of an- ancient Greece. Uh and that was the they they were the centerpiece of that form of warfare. And yeah, so that's that's where Shields High comes from.
2: Uh, okay, I thought it was some kind of a code word for the CIA.
5: No, I mean No, no, nothing 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 as cool as that. It's just uh Ancient Greece and what makes me get up every day and research and do all the work that I do for the show are the people who listen to the show. So it really does feel like they are. It's also why I call them Team Buck. And it's on my worst days, my darkest, saddest, most annoyed, most difficult days um, coming in and doing this radio show and getting to speak to all the wonderful people who listen and also email and call in like yourself, Richard. Um, that's, that's what keeps me going. So it really is. You guys are all, you guys are all my phalanx and I'm, I'm in it with you. So, uh, there you go. That's Shields High.
2: Well, I got an education there. But you were talking about where you uh celebrating Cinco de Mayo.
5: Oh, I'm going to talk uh, about that in the third. We're going to do Cinco de, Ma- uh, de Mayo in the third hour. So, um, uh, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to hold <laughs> off on that until we get, get into the next hour, R- Richard, but if you got any Cinco de Mayo thoughts, by all means.
2: Well, I don't have any thoughts
5: about
2: it. I'm just saying <laughs> okay. that I'm, okay. I'm, 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 right say say, I'm just uh, wearing a shirt that says that I got years ago that says that uh, I celebrated Cinco de Mayo at the Wheeling Island Hotel Casino and Racetrack. That's the only thing I can relate to. I'm getting ready to go in and see what they're doing. All
0: right.
5: Uh, I of, will uh, say, margaritas uh, are actually not hard. Margaritas are not hard to make, and they're a pretty, pretty delicious beverage. Richard, Shields High. Thank you very much for calling in. Uh, let's take. Jason in Arizona, what's up, Jason? Hey, she'll tie, Buck. She'll tie. Anyways, uh, I got a, I got a
3: movie suggestion for you. I was watching it on Netflix. It's called uh, Spectral, and it's kind of like a almost like a Predator. It's a great action movie. I, I think you'd really love it. I'm not gonna spill too much on it because you might watch it. I really suggest you should watch it. Okay. Uh, but anyways, one of my questions. Uh, one of my questions is. When Obama was president, uh, you know, over here in Arizona and stuff, we were having a. I remember hearing about the EPA and you know them buying up like billions and billions of rounds of ammo, two, two, three, five, five, six, whatnot. And I was curious because uh, about a couple weeks ago, it seems like there's these guys uh, like a liberal militia group, and they're trying to like it seems like they're trying to intimidate people. They keep trying to make it look like they're getting ready for some kind of civil war. And what my question was is, uh, do we know what happened to all the rounds? Because I know he's been uh, spending a lot of money or trying to get some kind of community agitating group back going. And I was just wondering if you had any info on that.
5: Um, well, I, I, I remember reading, and, and this is all from, from memory and somewhat distant uh, memory, I remember reading J- Jason a little bit about the large uh, bulk orders of ammunition the federal government was buying for non what we think of as non-law enforcement agencies, although uh, if you go and and read about Gibson Guitar, for example, you will find out that I, I think in that case it was fish and game or fish and wildlife. Um, but a lot of federal agencies have what are effectively, Special weapons and tactics teams. Or they have SWAT teams that they can deploy. Um, and Gibson guitar was a, was a case where. Do you remember that case? By the way, it's very interesting. They uh, yes, yes, I do. They yeah.
3: confiscated a bunch of their guitars.
5: Yeah, they went in and took all their took all these uh, guitars, and it had to do with an obscure importing law about wood, and it wasn't even illegal yep. there anymore but it was still you know they took it wood from india but it was illegal here i have to go back and read the details of it again but it was just a total overreach so there was a there hasn't been as much you know and, and that may be because i think the uh, the democrats and the obama administration towards the end realized that it's really bad press to have those federal agencies that we don't think of you know it's one thing when the fbi goes in and sometimes they're a little overzealous but when you have fish and game uh, or fish and wildlife uh kick in your door and they a bunch of guys yeah. MP, M- mp5s who are like you know where are the duck feathers you're hiding you're kind of like whoa <laughs> this is not the way <laughs> this is not the way this is supposed to go um so they, they slowed down on that and I think under the trump administration you'll see less of that but that was what I think the bulk orders of ammunition that was was what was getting people uh I- at least in the in the real news areas that I remember reading I mean I know you can go into sort of darker corners of the internet and they're like oh this is part of obama's martial law well i was saying years ago guys anyone who talks about obama martial law is uh is not someone you should listen to on anything because there's and i was right there's no obama martial law it never happened um but on yeah the federal agencies were buying up the weapons i I don't know anything about this liberal militia group you mentioned i've never the only liberal uh militant like groups that i know of in this country um are the uh, antifa groups that have been popping up and then you know uh, some of the. Well, that's
3: what I was worried about. But yeah, there's some goofy group that's been uh, posting videos of them shooting, and it's just funny. You can obviously tell they don't know what they're doing. They're shooting, because there in Arizona, you can go out into public land and shoot, as long as you're off so many miles from the highway. And the videos that they show, they're shooting in the mountains, they're up close, and they're shooting into these mountains that are all rock. Uh, they're all walking around with their fingers on their trigger. They're turning around with barrels pointing, and it's just oh, really gosh. ridiculous. Oh gosh, that sounds
5: like that's 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 not good. That sounds like an accident waiting to happen. But yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, exactly. I don't. I don't know anything about them, Jason. But Shield Time, man. Thank you for calling in. Uh, wish I, I don't have any more on that. That's one thing. Having been around some, uh, some armed, armed folks. On I've uh, been around lots of them in the uh, in the third world, and uh, had. Be had to uh, be around them as they were as they were carrying weapons. It is always um, a bit unsettling when you see the way that we are used to in this country. uh, Anyone who has even rudimentary firearms training has a certain sense about muzzle discipline and uh, finger off the trigger. And um, that doesn't that is not a universal thing around the world. And you can be in countries where all of a sudden you're walking around, you're like, wow, there's a lot of guys that are part of the uh the part of the army here and they all carry around their ak forty sevens like they're like they watch this in a movie and this is day one because they've got like their finger on the trigger and they're sweeping people with their muzzles left and right and you're, it's it, it could be a little could be a little spicy um just thinking back to some of the old days here John in Mississippi good to have you sir Buck how you doing I'm good man Sanco de mayo i'm 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 gonna go so low or not, man, I'm going to go drink some margaritas after this. Although I go low on the sugar. I think the margaritas can be a little too sweet sometimes.
2: Well, I agree there. i uh, got a quick quote. Hopefully it's not too easy. A uh, Quick movie question. First, I just want to say I'm excited to have found you on this dedicated slot. At least in my area, I've only ever had the opportunity to hear you as a guest host. So I'm really excited to have found you on the spot.
5: Thank you.
1: Uh, the quote,
2: put on these sunglasses or start eating that trash can.
5: I have no idea what that is. What is that?
2: <laughs> That's They Live. That's Roddy Piper, the big conspiracy. Uh, all
5: right, you got me. I've, I've actually never—I've never seen that movie. I—I I will admit it. Okay, now be- you have
2: to watch that movie. And anyway, but is that
5: a zombie movie or is that an action movie?
2: Well, it's—it's it's zombie action, action sci-fi.
5: I mean, is, is there—is there copious use of firearms against the zombies or or not?
2: There, there are there is. Well, now I guess the definition of copious. There is definitely firearm usage. There are explosions. Uh, you know, is action sci-fi? If it's pure pure action, maybe I cheated. It's action sci-fi.
5: No, that's all right. That we'll give you. That's that's good. Um, and yeah, I remember Rider Ray Pepper. Okay. I, I went for a few years. I remember I was I used to watch the WWE when it was a WWF, so I, I knew all these guys. Yeah.
2: yeah. Well, let me try and ask the, the quick question if we have time. Yeah, I got to okay. Go ahead. Sure. <laughs> with With your background um my background is a computers, and it always either drives me crazy or just cracks me up whenever I would see, in particular the way hacking is employed uh portrayed on t v and I always just wanted to ask you on one of these uh semi open line type days what you know what your reaction is to seeing uh you know spy movies and all the Hollywood stuff like that with your background.
5: You know, I I have a hard time with most of the most of the CIA the fictional CIA stuff that's out there just because it's usually so far from the mark. Although I will say that like James Bond I I will give a lot of allowances to because look, it's fantasy, it's entertainment, it's fun. So I'm not expecting it to be realistic. Sure. But even in the realm of even in the realm of I'm going to suspend disbelief, as they say, for a lot of the stuff, some of the James Bond movies just, you know, he's like He's on a motorcycle, he's going off a cliff, he's landing in a moving plane, he's taking the plane out of a dive. Yeah, it's just...
2: and, and conveniently, someone has placed a jetpack for him to pick up there on the ground. Yeah,
5: I mean, you know, I'm all, I'm all for, you know, death-defying stunts and, and cool stuff and, and lasers and ninja kicks and all that. But it needs to be, I'll, I'll accept that a guy who, you know, like, like Piers Brosnan, he used to do it, I'll, I'll accept that a, that a guy who looks like he would be much more Uh, You know, much, much more comfortable playing badminton than he does like karate. This is also my problem, I'll say, with the Taken movies. I mean, Liam Neeson is great. And I even had Liam Neeson quote that we were playing on the show on a regular basis. And the first Taken movie is pretty entertaining. But anybody who thinks a like 65-year-old British dude is going to be beating up like 15 Albanian mobsters with his bare hands. And they all have guns. You know, it's like it gets a little too silly. Um, but most uh, a lot, uh, most of the CIA spy stuff you see in movies and everything for me is a little, you know, I, I enjoyed Zero Dark Thirty as a movie. I thought that was that was really well done and really good. Um, I like Spy Game with Robert Redford and, uh, and right. Brad Pitt. Um, yeah, there, there are a few others that come to mind. I, I watched the first season of Homeland and then I was just kind of like, ah, you know, really? It, it got a little, you know, it was, it, was it, got, it got a little off the rails for me. I actually got into the second season and I'm like, all right, I'm done. I'm trying to think if there's anything uh, else that's – people say Alias is good with uh, Jennifer Garner, I think. Uh, but I never watched that one. Yeah. I'll check it,
2: out. it are, are, 80, are 80% of you really like just uh, Rick Moranis and My Blue Heaven? Is that what you're saying?
5: <laughs> <laughs> I've actually never seen My Blue Heaven. But i got to run to oh, a break, John. I... I know, I know. Another deficiency. I'm exposing my deficiencies on air here. John Shieldside, thank you for calling in. Team got to hit a break. We'll be back right after. And uh, lines are still open. 844-900-2825. Stay with me. This is going to be interesting. I was talking to you before about the election that's coming up in France. Mais oui, bien sûr. The French election on Sunday is going to be fantastic, Marveilleux. It sounds like uh, Marine Le Pen and... Emmanuel and Macron were uh, really throwing the brie and baguettes at each other during that debate. It was getting, it was getting rough. Um, but this is going to be interesting. Just breaking news, I think, while we're here on the show, which is always fun to break some live news for all of you. From the New York Times, the campaign staff of French presidential candidate Emmanuel Macron said on Friday evening that it had been targeted by a, quote, massive and coordinated hacking operation. After internal campaign documents were published online and on social or online on social media, Mr Macron's staff said in a statement that authentic documents including internal emails, accounting documents and contracts had been published alongside fake documents to sow doubt and disinformation. The statement said that the operation was clearly an attempt at democratic destabilization similar to what had occurred during the presidential campaign in the United States. Oh my, here we have it. Uh, claims of a massive hack meant to sway the election one way or another. Um, you also have uh, Le Pen, Marine Le Pen. Uh, you have Le Pen saying, wait, where did it go? I have it here. Um, well, they're saying they were hacked too, is the long and the short of it. So I will keep an eye on all this. But this was one of the um one of the side effects or or one of the the corollaries of the Trump election and the, the whole Russia hacking narrative that a lot of people I think didn't pay nearly enough attention to. And that is that now all that you really have to do, because the media in this country went overboard and created such a fervor around the uh, Russia hacking and, you know, you had the FBI talking about it and the intelligence community put out this report. And you still have a lot of Democrats that believe that Hillary would have won if it wasn't for Russia. That's, that's a widespread sentiment. You, you have some members of Congress that at least pretend to believe it, whether they really do or not is a, a separate question. But now all you have to do to throw the integrity of an election into doubt is to engage in some form of hacking and publicize it, and then whoever loses is automatically in a position to say, see, it wasn't a fair election. So no matter what, the door is open for undermining the integrity of the election process itself, and it's very easy now. What people don't spend enough time in the media in this country in particular thinking about is just how difficult it is to affect perception of an electorate like in this country, in France too, but in a large developed country with all these different media outlets, that one instance of hacking and the release of some emails would change the minds of enough people uh, to switch the election one way or another is just a a leap. Um, We'll see what comes out of the uh, Macron campaign tranche here. I think WikiLeaks is posting it, so yeah, WikiLeaks seems to be involved in this. or WikiLeaks is doing something with it. I I gotta check. This is all breaking, like I said. But, trust me, no matter what happens now on Sunday in France, there will be a lot of of theories, some conspiracy, others based on the facts that this election in France, just like there are those in this country who believe that hackers, perhaps even Russian hackers, uh, tainted things, that now... Uh, you have, well, depends on who's be, who's been hacked and who's been hacked more. Marine Le Pen says that they've been under cyber intrusions as well. So who knows if the election was the way it was supposed to be or not. I mean, cybersecurity is in our modern era, my friends, a central part of the, elect- the the integrity of the electoral process now. Because if people hack into all your stuff, well... Is it a fair election? That's what everyone's going to ask. We'll be right back. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too.
4: You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's
5: BuckSexton.com. I am not entertained? The Buck is back. Sanco de Mayo. Origins and today. Let's talk about First of all, happy Sanco de Mayo, everybody. Um, I'm sure if you say it to enough people, somebody will uh, perhaps get a little... Uh, snippy with you no, for no good reason but just to say well you know don't don't engage in wanton cultural appropriation of this uh, Mexican holiday um, and they might even try to lecture you on how it's not Mexican independence but you already know that uh, Mexican independence or uh, dia de la independencia I did not take Spanish in school I took French German and Arabic so there you go. Um, never took Spanish, so My Spanish pronunciations are going to be pretty terrible. Apologies for that. But Mexican Independence Day is September 16th. And that is when there was the uprising and a declaration of, uh, of independence from the Spanish colonial government back in 1810. So that was quite a ways before the 1862 Battle of Puebla which is what Sanco de Mayo celebrates. Now, a little bit of the, just the backstory on this, and then I'll give you my own little Sanco de Mayo story, which ties into progressivism and uh, campus culture and uh, being in the, the teeth of the uh, diversity educator movement, uh, having them come after you. That was an interesting experience as a young, as a young lad. Um, so... I'll get to that in a second, now. First, Sanco de Mayo. So, it's it's the Battle of Puebla during the uh, Franco-Mexican War, which is mid 1860s, 1861 to 1867. Cinco de Mayo obviously happened on May 5th, as we know, in 1862. It's not a huge deal in Mexico. It's really mostly celebrated only in uh, Puebla State, which is down in the southeast of the country also where the city of Veracruz or True Cross uh, was found, and that ties in a little bit to, well, that ties into the story here. So what happened? You get Benito Juarez uh, who becomes elected president of Mexico in 1861. The country's in really, really rough shape. and so they default. See, because that's what happens in countries when you go beyond your financial obligations. Just a little aside here. You run up debts that are too high, and you may find yourself in a position where you can't pay them back, and you default, and then your creditors, and then you can't get credit, and then you have all kinds of financial strife. Uh, but in the mid nineteenth century, when you still have colonial powers like France, Britain, and Spain, it's not like you default and you just deal with the economic pain, and maybe there's some there's some. Uh, Frosty meetings at the IMF or something. Oh, no. No, they they come after you in the mid-19th century. So France, Britain, and Spain sent uh, forces to Veracruz, Mexico, in, in Puebla State. Uh, they wanted the money. And the British and the, and the Spanish said, all right, well, well, we'll leave. We'll go. But the French, under Napoleon III, Napoleon III, he was uh, named for the great Napoleon who came before him, but Napoleon the was not nearly as uh, fantastique. So the the Napoleon the Napoleon the decides he's going to take a chunk out of Mexico, and I believe this was also tied into how the uh, the French wanted a um, pro Confederate uh, a pro Confederate state in Mexico, but I might be going beyond my. Might be going beyond my brief with that one. I might be might be beyond my knowledge base. Uh, so you, but anyway, the French land. They got a, They got six thousand troops that go to uh, that go into uh, East Central Mexico, and there is a force that rises up against them uh, that is greatly outnumbered. It is led by, I believe, General Ignacio Zaragoza. And they, ford- they They build up this town, they man the ramparts, and they get all ready for this French assault. And on Cinco de Mayo, 1862, uh, the fight happens. It was just a one-day affair. The French lost about 500 soldiers. The Mexican forces lost about 100. Some of you are probably sitting around thinking, uh, okay, by, by battle standards in really any period, that's a pretty minor that's a pretty minor uh n- you know for a major engagement between between nations or sorry not for, for for an engagement between major nations this is obviously not a major engagement that that's not that many uh casualties that that's pretty limited i mean this is during the period of the civil war right so we can imagine you look at back uh, at you know battles during the civil war gettysburg and antietam and all these places and Huge, uh, huge conflicts with tremendous casualties. Uh, Five hundred soldiers on the French side and hundred on the Mexican side. You wouldn't think this would necessarily get all that much attention in the history books. Now, here's how, here's how it does get attention, or why it gets attention, and then we'll get into the mark. You know how it became margaritas, and um, I, you know, there's, there's a level of app- of cultural appropriation that's okay. I think because we all celebrate food because we like to eat, we can you can always get away with appropriating food. Although there have been some complaints in places about, you know, how serving general so chicken in a cafeteria on a campus is cultural appropriation, or uh, calling it uh, Asian cuisine gets people upset because Asia is so big and there's different many different cuisines from nas- from nationalities and and uh, ethnic groups inside of Asia. So to call it Asian cuisine is you know, so the, people always find something to be upset about, right? There's always some way to criticize stuff. Anyway, so how does uh de Mayo become a thing? The anti-colonial aspect of this picked up with uh, primarily uh, Mexican-Americans in the 20th century. This is when it became more of a, of a thing that you would hear about here. Um, so it's become something that in the 1960s, Uh, Mexican-American activists raised this as a time for celebration in in areas of the country, um, like Los Angeles, uh, where there was a very substantial Mexican population, or Mexican-American population, um, and the anti-colonial roots had resonance. And if you talk about the 1960s and anti-colonialism as an ideology across the board gained a lot of resonance and prominence then, but in this instance it's really a, that's why there was this um this movement by the activists to say see this is mexico was standing up against imperial uh imperial acts by foreign powers then and and should now and defended its culture then and should now and so yeah they they kicked the french out so the uh mexican american activists in the 1960s it became a big deal it's not a big deal in mexico they don't even have it's not even an official federal holiday, so banks and schools and all that are still open. Um, and people always point out that there's a confusion with Mexican Independence Day, which I told you is in September. Um, but oh, and and back to the uh, back to the actual time of the battle, by the way, if you're going to find some greater significance in this um, uh, on May fifth, eighteen sixty-two, it was pointed to by historians as a a coalescing. Of the resistance against this French expedition to carve up a piece of uh, of Mexico, um, and so it led to more battles, and then eventually the French were defeated. So it's not not quite as theatrical as Leonidas's uh, stand against uh, Xerxes with the 300 at the pass of Thermopylae, the Hot Gates, uh, but it was pointed to as having a somewhat similar effect—a rallying cry among uh, indigenous Mexican forces to beat back. The, the French invaders, the colonial French invaders, and uh, once again, the French showing up telling people what to do. So that's Sanco de Mayo. And since then, because of, well, uh, obviously we have a very substantial Mexican-American population, a huge Mexican-American population in this country, um, and in all of the major urban centers, you have substantial Latino and, and, pre- and in many cases, predominantly Mexican populations or Mexican-American populations. So... The food and the culture have already become much more widespread. And, you know, that's why now people point out that this is an excuse for a lot of Americans to go out there and um, enjoy some aspects of Mexican culture, like the food and and drinks. Um, I, I myself like margaritas and guacamole very much. It's a little more frowned on to do the uh, sombreros and and to go beyond uh, just the cuisine, the celebration of that sense. From what I, from what I understand, <laughs> I want to tell you a story about a Cinco de Mayo celebration from from some years ago that was supposed to occur on uh, Amherst College campus that I may have been involved with. Uh, I may have been one of the organizers of said party on May fifth. 2001? Yeah. So let me tell you about that after the break. So I was with my uh, friends freshman year in my, my dorm at Amherst College. And we we are in uh, South Dormitory, and there had been a tradition of throwing a South of the Border Party on Seco de Mayo. I didn't start the tradition, I didn't fight it, but this is what was going on at the school at the time, and I figured, okay, this sounds and it was an all-school party, meaning that we were basically turning the dorm into a a giant, um, uh, I don't know, a, a giant party. Okay, so that was that was the plan, and the whole school was invited. Now the school is only sixteen hundred students, so it's not, and you know, of the sixteen hundred, and how many actually even want to show up and. Uh, drink, obviously non-alcoholic unless you're of age. Uh, margaritas and, and and all the rest of it, and drink a lot of Jose Cuervo shots. I remember that was a thing that was going to happen. Um, and I I figured, okay, well this will be fun. And we had there had been a little bit of a uh, uh some people didn't like that there was a floor there was mo- uh, in the dorm where it was mostly uh, it was a woman's floor. And it was where women who chose to not have men, because at Emory you had men and women not just on the same floor, but in the dormitories, but actually sharing bathrooms on those floors, which I didn't, I did not enjoy. That was not a good thing, um, and I, I did not. I still to this day I'm kind of perplexed by that. But that was what they had. Uh, we had old crappy dormitories, so maybe that's why. Uh, but there was a floor of all women. They called it the they called it the the nunnery. So. That, that got around. So we had already... I, I knew that people were... A little, there was a little bit of a sensitivity around certain things. It's a very sensitive campus. I mean, you offend the wrong person and you're going to hear about it. You know, defend the wrong group, you're going to hear about it via protests and sit-ins. This is where I learned about sit-ins as well, where people will uh, find a means to uh, force their force their grievances upon you by clogging up either a place where people want to sit or taking up... The, the one that I remember was... In the cafeteria, there's only one cafeteria, and like I said, 1,600 students. So if everyone—they assume that people will be coming and going. If you have a couple hundred students who sit in the cafeteria and don't move, no one can really sit down. So that, that was a thing that happened as well. I remember sit-ins when it happened. So we're going to throw our uh, Sango de Mayo party. And I, I, I don't remember what I was in charge of. There was a whole bunch of us uh, that were involved in throwing in this party. Uh, I just know that I was in charge of making it awesome. So I'd like to think that my, my title was Captain of Awesomeness, but maybe that wasn't my official title, but it, it pretty much could have been. And uh, I was a coordinator among the, the very, you know, there was somebody who was on um, alcohol detail for everybody who was of age drinking, of course. And there was somebody who was on uh, party favors detail. And there's somebody who was on party invitations detail, which was not me this this comes in the story in a moment here. So we're all excited and all I'm thinking is this is going to be great. It's towards the very end of the school year, Amherst is finally no longer I don't know how many of you went to school in the northeast or went to school in places where in wintertime it's like this, but it's central massachusetts might as well be siberia for 6 months of the year. It's not a not a fun situation with the weather, but in may, you know, it's actually it's actually nice. You don't have to worry about walking out your door and having a giant ice floe like fall on top of your head. That was a thing that used to happen. So we were throwing this party. I figured it's going to be beautiful weather. It's going to be so much fun. And everything's going to be great, and we're inviting everybody. It's not like one of these elitist off-campus fraternities where they're you know and they always of course have their own problems. Uh, this was open to anybody who wants to to come in. Of course, you know people need to we need to check IDs before anyone serving anyone any alcohol. Of course, responsibility responsibility first team. Uh, but this was a this was the, the party. It was going to happen, and so I remember we were in a meeting. And there was a young woman of, um, well, there's a young woman, I'll tell you that for now. And she was on the invitations uh, detail. And I did not, um, or, you know, she was on invitation, whatever, whatever you call it. I mean, detail makes it sound like I'm in the the Secret Service or something. But she was supposed to make the invitations for this campus-wide party. And Amherst is a very politically correct, very sensitive place. And she made an invitation, and she she was not American. And she made this invitation, um, and I didn't see it. And they put it in the mailbox of I think it was every student in the school. I think we I think they made xeroxes and put this this invitation, which we just said yeah, make a sen- like a Senco de mayo, and you know I figure you're gonna see like uh I don't know uh, maybe a couple of like m- maracas or something and. Uh, uh, a sombrero and a bottle of tequila, you know, something like that, right? I mean, this because this is how people celebrate Cinco de Mayo. Usually, mean, go out in a bar in your neighborhood, you'll see this is the stuff that it's really just a big. It's turned into a big ad for Dos Equis, Jose Cuervo, uh, whatever the margarita mix of choices. I don't know what it is, but uh, you know the 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 various. Uh, Mexican spirits and uh beer brands uh, capitalize on this tremendously, right just like a lot of holidays it becomes commoditized and commercialized and anyway so she makes this invitation, and I'm walking across the quad and it's maybe a week before the party's supposed to happen, so I want to say it's the end of April early may early may, and a couple of senior uh f- senior class females see me, and they have this look on their face like something uh just absolutely terrible as hell. Ha- I mean they have a look on their face like the the fine art museum of Amherst is burning down and like all, and there are 150 students inside or something. I mean they are really freaked out. And I'm thinking to myself, well this this is probably not good. And I'm just a freshman by the way, which if you remember from college, it's, you know, you're very low low man on the on the on the uh on the list. And I uh I remember they said uh have you seen the invitation? I said no. I have not. I have not seen this invitation, and they produced one right on the spot, and it was a flyer, and it said, in in big letters, "Come celebrate your uh, Mexican Independence, Sanco de Mayo," and there was a a guy who had a sombrero and a rather uh, pronounced mustache, and and a and was taking a swig from a big. Uh, bottle of tequila, and they, the school went into the school f- definitely freaked out. Uh, there were, I remember we used to have this. This is in the earlier days of Facebook and and you know internet usage on campus, and there was one main campus website, and I remember seeing on the uh, the chat rooms about Sanco de Mayo. How just this was how it was so terrible and so racist, and it's not Mexican independence, and how could anyone make such a stupid mistake and I mean it was just ooh it got it got hot, and there there was some there was some heat in this one, and uh what ended up happening was then it turned into well what are they gonna do and i had i will tell you that I had been to uh countless social events at Amherst at this point in time where alcohol was very freely available as it is on. Almost every college campus in the country, Uh, but it was made clear uh, to the organizers of the party that if there was uh, any alcohol served at this party uh, of any kind, by we couldn't even like check ID. No, 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 there was going to be none of that. Any alcohol served at this party, and they weren't going to. It wasn't going to be a college matter. They were going to let the town police come and arrest people. (laughs) I was like, okay, well, that's a first. Uh, so they, that was the initial response that, that I heard about from, I don't know, various deans or, or, or administrators. but And they're figuring out, well, how how do we do this? How do we make this a teachable—both a teachable and a grandstanding moment, depending on whether we're talking about professors or students or both, right? A teachable moment means uh, an excuse to force everybody to sit there and be lectured about any number of cultural insensitivities and all the rest of it. And then they— then they had this whole thing where they said, well, we got to find first the person that made the, this was the big scandal at campus, made the invitation. And for some reason, they thought it was me, but it was not, uh, thankfully. And I remember this was the first time I was ever really formally uh, had to had to deal with as a matter of, of a disciplinary issue, although I did not, there was no formal discipline brought against me, but there could have been. I had to sit down with a diversity educator and not to be educated so much as uh, very, very gruffly and uh, rudely lectured about all these, all the insens- insensitivities that are going on. Anyway, I, I will have to finish my Saquid Mayo story for all of you on the other side of this break. So stay with me, my friends.
4: Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party
5: and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. So I'm trying to throw a Cinco de Mayo party. I know I say Senko sometimes because I'm used to French. Sank instead of sink. Uh, so I'm trying to throw a, a Cinco de Mayo party for the whole campus. I'm, I'm not the only one, by the The whole dorm is throwing this thing. So I, I'm just somewhat visible as a well as a well-known white republican male in a place where that's uncommon uh and there's there's a party that's supposed to happen and people are offended and i mean the whole campus is offended i mean i think the town newspaper probably they're writing about this thing i mean it was the scandal it was the talk of the town and not in a good way these invitations went out there and i sat down with this diversity educator and he was very uh he's very short with me um and uh Said, you know, this is the kind of, this is the kind of thing that can get somebody uh, suspended because there's no place for this kind of hostile environment on campus. You know, take that—that's sort a of tone. And I said, like, well, what do you mean? I di- I didn't do anything. You know, I didn't do anything. He goes, well, ar- aren't you the one behind the invitation? I said no. And as an aside, before I go into what happened with the person who was in charge of the invitation, um, who didn't run it by anybody and decided to just xerox this thing and put it in like, you know, a thousand mailboxes. Uh, this is back in the Stone Age, my friends, when we had to use paper, you know, like now it would obviously be an Evite, which would also, I would assume, facilitate this invitation, finding its way probably into like the Boston Globe and any number of other places very quickly. It would, in the social media age we're in now, oh, this would have gotten everywhere. Um, but because of, you know, it was this is like uh, I mean, people were taking chariots to school instead of cars. I mean, this is 15 years ago now. Uh, if you had a cell phone, it looked like you were calling in calling in an airstrike or something. I mean, it was huge. It was like a heavy a heavy device that you needed a a shoulder bag to carry. Uh so it's very different now. Um, so we're I sit down with this diversity educator. I would never dealt with them before except in I, I never dealt with them before, uh except in like the first day of school when we had these mandatory lectures on as you know, the patriarchy and like white male oppression, and uh, you know how we're all um, just like one one step away from being a sexual assault, uh, you know, uh, uh, perpetrator without even knowing it. I mean, a lot of like really not not particularly uh, fair minded or helpful stuff. But that I had to deal with them now, and they were sent on orders from the dean. So now there's disciplinary function. And it's the end of my first year. I really don't want to get in any trouble. And they're saying that you could be uh, removed from campus for uh, this kind of— I'm sure today they'd probably say that this was a— that, that whoever made this invitation might have been guilty of, like, a hate crime. Although there was nothing— again, Mexican independence, instead of the celebrating the battle of— uh, the victory of the Battle of Puebla over Napoleon Third in which there were 500 casualties. Um, but, yeah. I mean, so they got that wrong— and then the, the drawing of the guy, he was he had a big mustache and a sombrero and a bottle of tequila. So it was you know, there were some I understand there's stereotypes. I'm not I'm not saying you'd want to do this. I'm just saying it, I don't know if it's like someone should get locked up for this. That seems a bit that seems a bit extreme. But they're saying they were they were using all those, you know, removed from campus, hostile environment, uh, obviously, um, you know, violation of the student code of uh You know, the student code of conduct or the student code of respect at these schools, by the way, is always only brought up in the context of uh, hurt feelings of aggrieved or oppressed um, groups on campus. It's never it's never brought up, though, if you're if you're like a Christian that feels like the uh, classes that mock your faith and, and all that, you know, it's never brought up to defend you or what you think, you know. If you want to throw a Reagan party, you better be ready to get picketed. There's never a code of conduct. Hey, why don't we be nice to somebody and let them just do their thing? Um, anyway, so I sit down, and here's what ends up happening. The diversity educator says, well, who's who made the invitations? And everybody knew because we had we had been in a meeting, and people had, you know, I did, I did. You know, people raised their hands and volunteered. And, again, I was just, like, captain of awesomeness. I wasn't really, um, you know, one way or the other. I, I didn't really have a specific role other than just to. Make all the magic happen, as I do here in the Freedom Hut. Really, it's not. I guess captainness of awesome is still my title. I'd like to think uh, captainness is not a thing. Uh, so we he finds out the diversity educator guy finds out that the the offender who made the invitation, the insensitive invitation, is a female uh, foreign and I believe South Asian student. Uh, so that changes the whole dynamic because now. Are, are you going to uh, a you going to severely punish a a female foreign uh, minority student over this infraction? That doesn't have the same. I mean, they wanted they wanted to hoist up Buck Sexton and you know make an example of him. They didn't really want to mess with this female student who clearly just didn't think that this was that big a deal. But isn't a isn't a useful target for the purposes of um, making their their broader political point on the campus, so that then throws this whole thing into a oh gosh what's going on now, and uh, the back and forth on the campus website because at that point you could publish anonymously, although as I always told people there's really no such thing as publishing anonymously. You you think you post anonymously, but there's always a trail, and the moment that people start throwing around terms like hate crime, you know maybe maybe they call in the police and they trace the uh, IP address of the comments, but the comments got got particularly nasty, so we said all right look. What what can we do? I went. I remember meeting with uh, meeting with the diversity educators. This was all left to the diversity educators because I think it was one of the only things they really had to do, other than a couple of workshops on how uh, you know white male patriarchal uh, patriarchal oppression is so widespread on campus. Uh, so they had something to do, and uh, they were in charge of coordinating our penance for this. You know, the whole dorms penance for this assault on, on diversity and uh, assault on i don't know whatever cultural appropriation all, all that stuff so the decision was made and they asked i remember somebody somehow gave them a list of like the things that were were planning on doing and you know there was someone had come up with this idea they were gonna they're of course gonna be giving out some sombreros that was a big no-no that was off the list and uh I think somebody said that they wanted to have a thi- uh, have a uh, it was like pin the tail on the on the on the donkey, but you'd be in a chair and they'd spin you around, and then you'd and there might have been tequila involved. There might I don't know. I mean, I'm you know, it was a long time ago, guys. This is you know, n- neither here nor there. And somebody may have said they were going to call it the Loco Chair or something like that. I think so. That was going to be one of, you know, there was a kind of a amusement park ride aspect of this that was planned. And there were a few things like that that were supposed to be maybe a part of this. I think maracas were maybe going to be purchased in bulk and you know stuff like that. And we were just told none of that. Uh, there can be nothing. There can be no, uh, no wearing of ponchos, no sombreros, no. Uh, know any of that stuff? Which I wasn't planning on doing anyway. I, I just wanted an excuse to play loud music, drink alcohol, and t- I mean, drink um, juice and talk to my female peers. Uh, I didn't really care what the cultural situation was, but other people had gotten into all this stuff, right? It was them. They were the ones doing all this stuff. I'm just, like I said, cap- captainness of awesome. So uh, they they said that we could we could throw a party that had no decorations. No handouts of of any paraphernalia, um, no specifically e- uh, ethnic music, and uh, no alcohol that was uh, well, they said no alcohol period, of course, because there are some there could be people under twenty one there, but um no drinks that were specifically, so we just ended up throwing a party calling it a Psycho de Mayo party, and it was it, it had nothing to do with anything, no cultural appropriation whatsoever. Uh, I think, we, you know, there might have been people that were smuggling in bottles of tequila here and there, and the party was okay, but the whole thing was cast under this cloud of, you know, how could you and, and all of this, and I just remember thinking that uh, there are such more important things for people to be concerned and worried about, but in a campus environment, these are the issues that get people really energized, and it's just a fantastic opportunity for... Uh, virtue signaling for showing how uh, evolved and brilliant and thoughtful and connected to the, you know, to the either foreign cultures or to the downtrodden or to the whatever you are. Uh, and it was a, a real learning experience, too. I mean, I remember this was on campus. There were uh, somebody was uh, stabbed very seriously, actually. Um, there were fights where people were seriously injured. Um, there were parties that the police had to come and and actually one of them was a party at one of the, uh, uh, I believe they call it an affinity house or a, um, uh, it was like a a cultural celebration house for a a minority group. And the police had to be called in with a lot of pepper spray and a lot of batons. Um, But like that was never, that wasn't a big scandal. That wasn't a big, these were all things that would happen in and around the camp. And like Amherst is usually a pretty, I mean, the, the police uh, log in Amherst is usually like about a rogue squirrel disturbing girls, you know, by running across the ceiling at night or something. I mean, it wasn't I mean, that rogue squirrel was about as dangerous as it usually got. But there were incidents in my four years there that were much more serious than a, an instance of, you know, handing out sombreros and drinking tequila on, and misnaming, uh, you know, May 5th as Mexican Independence Day. But on a college campus, actually, th- those are the gravest sins. Real crimes, even real sins, things that in real life uh, will get you in big trouble. Don't get the sin. Don't generate the same outrage as uh, you could say cultural crimes do. Um, And this was a long time ago. I'm sure it has gotten much worse now. I think that right now there. Oh, but I forgot to even tell you, they threatened to pick at us, too. They're going to be protesters outside a party, a college party. Like, what was that? That's not fun. Right. But anyway, so we threw it and it kind of wasn't so fun, but it was a very instructive event because seeing the administration of the school mobilized in such a way, seeing the uh, having being told that people would be arrested. I mean, there there was alcohol. I mean, there was stuff going on. It was, you know, it was like Animal House over there sometimes. And, and you know, nobody was ever calling the, the actual police police, not the sort of campus police, the, to come on and arrest people. I mean, that wasn't done. Oh no! But if you if you hand out sombreros to people, you're you you. There might be there might be people going to jail. It was very instructive. So uh, that since then I've I've celebrated cinco 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 de mayo, Buck. Yeah, right. Cinco de mayo with uh with friends whenever I get the opportunity. I think it's been pretty rare, honestly. Um, and tonight I don't know. I, I say I make it sound like I'm fun and going to party, but it's a very decent possibility that I I may not even make it through one mar- margarita. I might just. Uh, I don't know. Read read a history book and pass out. But I'd like to think that I'm cool and we'll go out and have a drink and celebrate celebrate the fantastic victory of uh, the general in Puebla. I believe it was in Puebla de Los Angeles is the name of the town and uh, beating Napoleon III's troops, beating the French. So there you go. That is my Cinco de Mayo story. Sticking to it, and I'll be right back. Wow, this is this is really getting interesting. Actually, on this uh, French election leak with Macron, you have the um, the the media. This is the headline up on Drudge right now, being told to ignore it. Um, isn't this interesting? What what are journalistic? First of all, I think journalistic ethics is kind of a funny a funny thing in the first place. I think there's just ethics. I, I don't really know that journalists. Other than maybe uh, protecting sources, but I, I don't know what's specific to journalism. You know, tell the truth, be honest, <laughs> have some integrity. I don't think it's that different than any number of other professions where you would hope that people are being ethical. But uh, what are the what are the ethics of dealing with information like this that has been uh, stolen in this way? You know, it, it's uh, I, people because someone's going to publish it, so this idea that maybe you'll somehow find a way to to shut it down and uh, and prevent it from becoming a game changer in the election that that's just not going to happen in the in the internet age it's not going to happen in the newspaper era you know the gatekeepers had so much more power and i feel like if you know the new york times the washington post and a few other papers decided they weren't going to run with something there was a real um, opportunity for them to squelch a story entirely. Um, But now, once it's out there, once it's been released online, I mean, someone's going to go with it, so what are you really doing by not? And I wonder what is in these emails. This is what uh, is up on Yahoo News right now. Leading French presidential candidate Emmanuel Macron's campaign said it had been the target of a massive computer hack Friday evening that dumped its campaign emails online online. One and a half days before voters choose between the centrist and his far-right rival, Marine Le Pen. Macron, who extended his lead in the polls over Le Pen on Friday, is seen as the front-runner in an election billed as the most important in France in decades. All right, now here's the specifics of the leak. Some nine gigabits of data were posted by a user called emleaks to Pastebin, a document-sharing site that allows anonymous posting It was not immediately clear who was responsible for posting the data or if any of it was genuine. Um, In a statement, Macron's political movement, En Marche, onwards, confirmed that it had been hacked and it is the victim of a massive and coordinated uh, hack that has given rise to diffusion on social media of various internal information. Well, now you start to get into some, you know, you get into the questions about. Is it better to know, you know, transparency about what a campaign is saying and doing? Look, I I know that hacking is illegal and I I would never, I don't condone it. And um, I I wouldn't condone it in any context. And um, what do you do, though? Wouldn't you want to know? This is the fascinating thing. I mean, if you're a voter in France and someone says, well, we have all of the Guy, even if you're a Macron voter—and, of, of course, you can draw the parallels, my friends, to the, what happened here with Trump and Hillary, right, and the Podesta emails and all that. So we, we're all aware of how this is this is hitting on some very sensitive areas uh, it, it, with the media in this country and how they're going to cover all of this. But I, I would want to know—I would want to know what the truth is as much as I could, even if I was a supporter— so for example, if there had been a hack of Trump emails right before, and we know that there were some intrusions in the RNC computers and you know, people have said all that, but uh, if there was a hack of, I don't know, Trump going back and forth with some of his top people, um, would I, and I knew that they were online and I could just click and read them, am I likely to read them as a voter? I, I think the answer to that has to be yes. Uh, you'd rather know the truth. Um. But this now has become a—it's going to feel, I think, soon like this is a standard, meaning that there will be—because all it takes is one person to try to do this, and the scale of the hack doesn't even matter all that much. And you'll get into these dueling narratives over uh, whether it affected the outcome or not. And so, for example, from the Russian perspective, if it really is— to expose what Russia and Putin, the Kremlin thinks is Western hypocrisy when it comes to free and fair elections, then well they've managed to do that just by creating uncertainty about the outcome and the effect that the hacking has had on the outcome. So they don't what I'm saying is they don't have to change the outcome. they just have to leave a question out there as to whether they've changed it and, and that that might have an impact. Now, that might change the way people view. Uh, some of these elections, at least, um, and uh, and we'll see. But this French election going on on Sunday is going to be uh, more. It could be closer and more interesting than anybody had thought up to this point. And if Le Pen wins, by the way, oh my gosh, they're going to be uh, they're going to they're going to need smelling salts over at the New York Times. I mean, someone's going to have to wake them up. They're going to pass out over this. They're going to completely lose it. Uh, please tell a friend about the Buck Sexton uh, Buck Sexton with America Now this show. Uh, if you get a chance over the weekend also if you're listening uh go click on the downloadable version of the show on itunes you can subscribe which would be the best thing and it really helps the show and encourages me when i see those subscriber numbers going up week after week as they have been also on bucksexton.com we post stories all throughout the day and uh, i write there and there are other posts that go up have a fantastic weekend happy Sanco de mayo excited to join you all monday shields high